0: Luz Maria Enriquez took a new job as executive director of the ACLU of Missouri on February 24th. That was just one month ago, and it's been a month in which life as we know it has been completely upended. But the work the ACLU is doing surely feels more vital than ever. The organization is now fighting to get some detainees released in advance of possible coronavirus outbreaks in jails. It's working to make sure elections stay fair and democratic, and much, much more. And so, joining me today to talk about that work and her life is Luz Maria Enriquez. Luz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Luz, talk about trial by fire. I mean, one month ago, did you have any sense that your entire agenda was about to shift
1: so dramatically? No, I did not. Um, One month ago, I was very eager and happy to be starting at the ACLU of Missouri. And at the time, uh, I knew that COVID-19 was happening abroad, um, but I did not imagine at that time the, the changes to everyday life that would occur pretty much overnight, um, I would say, within the second and third week of me joining at the ACLU. Um, but it's given me a really good opportunity to truly value uh, having the ACLU and the, being part of that community because I think it is a a very important time for us to be closely watching what our government's response is and making sure that uh, the response is scientifically justified and no more intrusive on civil liberties than absolutely necessary.
0: Hmm. So to some extent, the agenda remains the same, just different specifics that you're dealing with?
1: Well, our mission uh, continues to be to ensure that uh, civil liberties are not infringed upon um, at, at pretty much any point in time. But I think uh, with the coronavirus and with, um, with everything that's going on, what we want to make sure is that we are following the that our policies are informed by what our public uh, health officials are saying and what, what public health experts are saying, as opposed to motivated out of just purely fear or um, politics.
0: Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of talk, people saying, wait a minute, I didn't know the government was allowed to do this. I didn't know the government was allowed to do that. And yet, to some extent, a, you know, some of these measures seem necessary. Where do you draw the line and say, okay, here's where um, this is something where we have to make sure the government doesn't step into infringing on this particular freedom? Well, I, I don't think that there's
1: a blanket um, I think what we're looking at is really what our public health experts are telling us is necessary to to contain the spread of the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we at the ACLU understand that we are part of this larger community and that there has to be some sort of balancing when, when our public health experts are saying that if we if we uh, engage in these particular practices during this time, uh, that will minimize the spread of the virus. We want to make sure and be both uh, safe and healthy, but also maintain our civil rights and liberties to the maximum extent possible. And again, that would be informed by public health experts. Mm
0: -hmm. I know we'll get back to coronavirus here in a little bit, but since this is many of our listeners' first introduction to you, um, you know, back when we were first planning this interview, I think we were thinking of this more as as a get-to-know-you, and I I don't want to leave that off the table. So I understand you're a California girl, but this isn't really the California of Beverly Hills 90210. Um, what what brought your family to Fontana?
1: Uh, so my parents immigrated to uh, the L.A. area uh, way before I was born. As teenagers, uh, they were immigrants from Mexico. They did come over to this country undocumented, uh, and i was I was born in the L.A. area, and my family eventually moved um, out of the L.A. area at the time uh, because of Uh, of fear from where the area that we were living. There was a lot of gang activity at the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. So my parents moved our family into the Fontana area, uh, which is where I grew up for the majority of my life. And you
0: said your parents, when they came over, they were undocumented. Um, Was that something that presented challenges
1: for you when you were a kid? Uh, So I will say we were fortunate to uh, have my parents be eligible for amnesty in 1986. Um, and that I believe I firmly believe really changed the trajectory of my life because I have seen uh, relatives and friends who did not have that same opportunity where they have continued to live in the shadows and in fear of of um, having their family broken apart because of documentation issues. Um, for me, when I was three, that was uh, when my mother uh, and and father were able to apply for the amnesty program. Um, And I still to this day remember, 10 years later, going to their citizenship ceremony uh, Mm in, I believe it was 1997, because that was when they were eligible to apply for citizenship.
0: Amnesty has become such a dirty word in places like Arizona and even some parts of Southern California. People look at this as, as, you know, just such a terrible thing. Um, For your family, what kind of benefit did that have once they were able to get in line for that legal process?
1: I think it was a huge benefit um, in the sense that uh, my my parents uh, became uh, more connected to uh, to uh, like public services. So, for example, I clearly remember uh, being told early on in life how we had to be uh, very cautious when interacting with police um, mm-hmm. and try not to draw attention to ourselves. Uh, growing up, I would say there was still that. That message of caution, but it was no longer this fear that we would be torn apart, um, or that we couldn't necessarily call upon authorities um, to to help in certain situations because of concern uh, into our documentation status. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I would say is one thing I was very well aware of was um, the impact that not having documentation status could have on on, um, for example, employment um, Mm -hmm. and how easy it was to uh, work a job because I saw this all the time and I heard friends and family talking about it and not get paid and really feel like there was no recourse. Um, So there there were everyday implications, and I would say it changed the trajectory of my life uh, because even though I was U.S. born and a U.S. citizen, having my mom and my dad have citizenship status um, allowed them to uh, navigate our our social networks in a different way. Mm
0: -hmm. And you ended up becoming a lawyer. What made you decide to choose that as a career path?
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I grew up really uh, looking at the power of community and and taking care of each other, and I was very much um, aware of the social implications of of like we talked about documentation status, but also um, I did not I could not articulate at the time racial justice type issues, but I was very well aware of them. I saw them every day. I saw the segregation that existed. I saw the lack of access to certain opportunities uh, for communities of color. And I remember always just being reminded that 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 wasn't something that I thought was fair and trying to think of, how, well, how can we change this? How can we combat this? Um, community was very important to my family, and I always felt a sense of, of protecting community uh, rights and protecting the vulnerable. I very much understood that uh, the rights of vulnerable populations were very much intertwined with my rights. Um, and what could happen to a vulnerable population could easily happen to anyone else. And so it was really important to stand up for those vulnerable populations and to stand with them uh, to make sure that they were equally protected. Um, so going throughout college, uh, one of the, the, uh, the subject areas that really interested me was how do you the law to achieve that. Um, and at the time, I was hearing stories uh, of lawyers at the ACLU fighting for immigrants' rights. Um, I was also hearing about uh, lawyers at the California Rural Legal Assistance Program uh, fighting for the rights of, of farm workers. And I thought, what a great way for me to use my skill sets uh, to pursue my passion by going through law school. I will also say I was in college at the time of September 11th, and I was very inspired by the work of, of David Cole, who is now uh, as the, direct, the legal director of the ACLU on uh, the rights of, of detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And it was just really clear to me that the law could be used as an avenue uh, to to protect and advance civil rights and liberties.
0: So that career path was, was always there for you. It sounds like you knew what type of law you wanted to do. It Maybe the real left turn in your life was the fact that after being in, in Southern California and being in New York City, you ended up moving to St. Louis. Uh, and this was back in 2014, so it wasn't for this job. What brought you here?
1: Yeah, so um, there were a variety of reasons for moving to St. Louis at the time. At, uh, at the time, I had been working at a large firm. In New York, handling complex commercial litigation, I have been doing a lot of pro bono work, uh, simultaneously, uh, because that was really where my passion lies. Um, and I had really great experiences building my litigation skill set at the law firm. Uh, and my family and I at the time were looking, uh, for new opportunities. And one of the, uh, one of the possibilities that opened up to us was relocating to St. Louis and mm-hmm. I will. I will say I did not have a lot of. Uh, I had not had like a lot of contact with folks in St. Louis at the time, um, but I did a lot of research on Missouri um, and realized that there was just a lot of potential to build a, a civil rights career in, in the area. That there were a lot of civil rights needs, um, and that it was also a great location for my family for a variety of other reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my family and I strategically decided that we would be moving to St. Louis, and I uh, was very, very firm that when I moved out here, I was not going to be looking for another uh, private law firm job because I really wanted to pursue civil rights work.
0: We're talking to Luz Maria Enriquez. She's the new executive director of the ACLU of Missouri. She's actually celebrating one month on the job as of today, and, and what a month it's been. Um, Luz, now, Missouri can be difficult terrain for people working on these issues, and obviously, you know, you've had some some key positions here, but I'm wondering, do you find it hard to talk, do you find you have to talk about these issues differently when you're in Missouri than you would have in, say, California or in New York?
1: Uh, yeah, I think, I think you do in the sense that uh, when you're in California, and New York, I think it's probably a safe assumption that if you're talking about civil rights and civil liberties uh, issues, that uh, you're in a group of folks who are already um, on a similar page as you are. What I have found in Missouri uh, is that folks are at just various different levels, not that are not receptive to talking about those issues but uh, the understanding of those issues may be different hmm. um, so I think I think it does it does change the way we talk about the issues, um, but that's okay because I think it's, it's an opportunity to really explore so many different viewpoints that perhaps may not be as readily available in the East Coast or the West Coast where I was used to, used to being um, and I think it also uh, increases the ability to talk about these issues um, on a larger scale to a larger, broader group of folks.
0: Now, you were the managing attorney of the Education Justice Program at Legal Services of Eastern Missouri. What were some of the
1: key things you were working on in that job? Yeah, so um, in that, that was a program that I built at Legal Services of Eastern Missouri uh, to really Target the education inequity issues that uh, we were seeing in, in Missouri. Um, we really looked at school to prison pipeline type of issues and access uh, to educational opportunities to children of color. Uh, so we had several cases that we worked on, and we used a variety of impact. Uh, Impact advocacy tools, including affirmative litigation. Um, along with that, we did a lot of community, uh, community education, uh, like know your rights type of, of workshops, um, so that parents and students were aware that, uh, there were rights and statutes that surrounded things like school discipline uh, one of the bigger things that I worked on uh, sort of going up through the end of my of my uh, tenure there at legal services was a case uh, involving the rights of students experiencing homelessness hmm. which which really spoke to the challenges that students experiencing homelessness face in accessing an education and how they were uh, being systematically um, Uh, excluded from the education system in this particular school district and in Missouri at large. Um, So it was really trying to tackle how to gain access to the education system for students experiencing homelessness. Um, And we were very, uh, very explicit about the disproportionate impact that that homeless uh, students were experiencing in accessing the education system, um, and how that was tied to uh, housing issues that we were seeing in particular areas, and how uh, populations of color were disproportionately impacted by these issues. So, what made you made the make the jump to the ACLU? So, uh, I will say it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that I I uh, initially jumped. It was something that I really, really uh, considered because I wanted to have uh, a larger impact across various systems. And I really enjoyed the work and what I had built at Legal Services of Eastern Missouri. Um, But I, I wanted the opportunity to have a larger statewide impact across institutions beyond just the education system. And I thought this would be a really good opportunity. For me to take the skills that I had developed um, as an attorney in New York, and then running a program here in St. Louis, um, to really look at larger issues and how those issues are are um, intertwined in and impacting one and the other, as opposed to just narrowing the scope and looking at one specific issue.
0: And so in this first month, and again, we know it's only been one month, like you have just jumped into this job in a a time when there are so many things happening so fast and and changing so fast in this state. Um, But one of the first issues that you found yourself jumping right into has to do with the health of detainees in our prison system and in our jails. And you issued a statement saying Missouri should heed public health experts' advice And immediately release individuals in detention who are at high risk of severe illness or death from COVID-19. What kind of response did that call get? Is there any such effort
1: underway that you're aware of? Well um, I I think that uh, there are there are certainly uh, partners uh, who are who are pushing this effort and I think uh, that folks are monitoring the situation very closely you know, I, I think that there's a misconception that prisons and jails are, are closed environments. Uh, but we, what we know and what public health experts are, are telling us is that they are not, that there are folks who are coming and going into that prison community um, that is increasing the risk of, of the exposure of the COVID-19 virus in the in our prisons and jails, and that the conditions and correctional facilities are, are highly conducive to spreading the virus. And if the virus goes into our prison community, it's also very possible that it comes out of that prison community and into the community at large. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're very concerned about about making sure that, that our government and officials and decision makers are, are heeding... The public health experts' advice about reducing the prison uh, prison population and the jail population, and reducing the the uh, potential exposure to the COVID nineteen virus.
0: In the last twenty four hours, uh, Missouri saw its first confirmed COVID nineteen case in a state prison. Uh, does that
1: increase the urgency of that call for you? Well, I think it, it shows what the public health experts uh, are continuing to say that uh, that prisons are not going to be immune to to this virus, um, and that it is it is extremely uh, easy to to uh, get the virus. Um, and so, what we really have to be looking at is what our public health experts are saying about preventing the virus, uh, preventing the the virus uh, from from coming in as much as possible, and also uh, how to best treat when we know that that um, that someone's been contaminated with the virus.
0: Okay. Now it's also been reported over the weekend that the Department of Justice is seeking new emergency powers, and one of the things they want is the power de- to detain someone indefinitely. Is that something that's that's on your radar right now, and and should it be on ours?
1: Yeah, I would say it should be on on everyone's radar. It is on our radar. Uh, We have concerns about needlessly prolonging um, uh, anyone's detention um, and their cases, and also the the stigma and the harm associated with with uh, having an open case and being detained for an indefinite amount of time. There are also fundamental rights and issues that come into play, um, and... You know, I think, I think that's a serious concern that should be on everyone's radar, and, and we need to be very vigilant about and, and cautious about. So,
0: bigger picture, what do you see as the biggest challenge right now for the ACLU of Missouri as an
1: organization? Well, I think right now is continuing to remain vigilant on the, the many everyday changes um, and the impact that those changes are having on our civil rights and liberties. It's uh, changing daily, sometimes hourly, uh, and getting that information uh, up to date uh, from where it's happening. I think that that's a challenge because there are so many different different areas, including we talked, uh or you mentioned earlier, like voters, right, um, what's happening in jails and prisons, what's happening to all other vulnerable communities. Uh, they, these are all things that need to be on our radar, and we need to just make sure that um, our government officials are following uh, scientifically-based uh, procedures.
0: And at the same time, you know, there's all this urgent work to be done, and you have to keep your eye on developments across the state. Um, but I know that you're one of the many people right now dealing with the fact that you have a school-aged child and the schools are closed. Has it been hard to get any work done during this period of just chaos for so many families? Yeah,
1: so it's uh, it's definitely a new balancing act and something that uh, I am still learning. It's Still very very new, and each week I keep saying, it will well, we learned something something new this week. Let's work on it next week." Um, I know it's a challenge for many families. It's certainly a challenge for my family, um, and it's a big adjustment. and I, I encourage myself, by saying we are all doing the best we can. And, you know, this is all new to everyone.
0: Well, Luz uh, Maria Enriquez, I want to thank you so much for finding the time to join us today in the middle of just everything that you're dealing with and, and this first month. And uh, we really appreciate you making the time. So much. It was great uh, speaking with you. And again, Luce is the executive director of the ACLU of Missouri as of one month, um, and we'll be continuing to check in with her as things develop and and she gets more settled in there. Uh, this is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, ninety point seven KWMU.